Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to um, Romans chapter 12 with me, please. Valerie and I are very glad to be with you this morning, but it's strange. It's strange to be in town and worshiping with another congregation and and not preaching at Rosemont. That's a different dynamic for us. If we're in town, we're always at, at home, but we're at home with you too because we're all the body of Christ. Let me also say that we really appreciate um, your emphasis in your worship service on praying for other congregations. Uh, Your pastors are doing a great job of leading you uh, not to feel like your congregation is in competition with other congregations, but to try to help you to be unified with the other congregations because we are the body of Christ. And we're hoping that as time goes on, Rosemont and Cornerstone can fellowship more and more together, work, minister more and more together. So follow your pastors in that leadership. It's a wonderful thing. And it's a neat thing for me to get a a letter from Cornerstone once in a while from Sister Wendy Godowitz. Who's Wendy? Thank you. Uh, I love to get the letter saying that that you all prayed for us uh, on Sunday morning. So keep that up. It's, It's a wonderful thing. Do you have Romans chapter 12? Well, let's pray together first, and then we'll dive in. Father, you know we need uh, what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 12. We, we need it, and Christ deserves it. And so my prayer this morning is very simple, and that is that your Spirit will teach, He will exhort, He will encourage, He will rebuke, if necessary, and correct, but also that we will be conformed to the image of your beautiful Son for his namesake, for his glory. Father, we come here as sinners. Every one of us, there's not a one of us that is worthy to be called your children, left to ourselves, but we have been made worthy in and through Jesus Christ. And so we want him to be known for that. We, we want him to be famous all over this world. And as Mark mentioned a little bit ago, this world that seems like it's becoming more evil every day. We know it's not, but um, we're seeing evil in ways that we've never seen it in our lifetime, at least. But that's a great opportunity for us to stand out. It's a great opportunity for you to show how you change hearts. And so, Father, change us. Change us to be like Christ. Change us to be like Paul describes here in Romans chapter 12. And as you do that, we'll be very, very careful to give you all the praise and all the glory for you alone deserve it. And I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We have two sons, and our oldest son is a captain in the Army, and um, he's stationed at Fort Bragg right now. They moved him from Colorado to Fort Bragg, so that's good for Mom and Dad. We get to see him more often. So a couple weeks ago, July 4th, we went down to Fayetteville and spent the day with him and his wife. And they took us to the new um, Airborne Special Forces Museum there in Fayetteville. And if you haven't been, it's, it's, it's a wonderful museum. I would encourage you to go. Very moving place. A uh, very sobering place to go. But in the museum, uh, of all that is displayed there, there's, there's one section that's dedicated to, to the battle back in Mogadishu in 1993. Uh, if you ever saw Black Hawk Down or read the book, um, that's where the book comes from. That's what it's talking about. And so they, 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 they made this whole section about the battle and everything that happened there on those, those couple of days. Um, in the section, there is a display on two particular men. Uh, their names are Gary Gordon and Randy Sugart. And they are Delta snipers. And evidently, 
during the first part of that conflict, they were in another helicopter, not one of the two that went down, but they were in another helicopter firing on the enemy and trying to keep the enemy suppressed from their helicopter until uh, things just got too dangerous and, and, and they pulled out. After they pulled out, um, Gordon and Sugart went to their superior, superior officers and asked to be inserted back on the ground to protect the one um, remaining survivor, the pilot of one of those helicopters that had been shot down. Uh, they were warned. Uh, they were taken to the side. They were warned about the risks of this, the dangers that were involved, what could possibly happen to them. But evidently they still went eagerly. They begged to go. They wanted to go. And so they were inserted back on the ground and they went back in to protect that, that living pilot. The way things go, I think they killed about 25 Somali rebels and wounded many, many more before they were actually overrun by a mob of thousands of Somalis. Uh, they were killed. But the pilot survived. And after it was all over, uh, both of these men were awarded the Medal of Honor posthumously. That's only right. Uh, both of these men now have a place in that museum, as I was just telling you, where, you know, until the Lord returns, um, their names and what they did and why they did it will be remembered. It will be seen by thousands and thousands and thousands of people uh, through the ages to come, recognizing what they did for the sake of that pilot to, to save his life. The pilot also went on to write a book called In the Company of Heroes. And I haven't read it. I'd really like to. And, and we can only imagine what he says in there. You know, these two heroes gave their lives so that he could live. And now this book honors them and, and what they did on that day. That's what honor looks like for somebody who risks his life or gives his life to save another. That's what honor looks like, right? It's, it's only right. They deserve that. They, they've earned that recognition. So my question is this. What should honor look like from those of us who, as Paul said in Romans chapter 5, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. And much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. What should we be doing for the memory and the fame and the appreciation, the honor, the pleasure of our great God and Savior? What should our Christian lives look like? There's a lot of Christians that struggle with this. Professing believers, I'll say that. A lot of people who claim the name of Christ, claim to be believing in what he did on the cross to, to make them right with God, who struggle with this very thing. Even churches like ours, like yours and, and like Rosemont, where we truly believe Scripture is our sole rule for faith and practice. I know you believe that here, and we do as well. But even in churches like ours, there's, there's a lot of people who seem to be getting the first part of that they're learning. They're believing the right ologies and isms and systems. You know, they know the attributes of God. They know the, the works of God. They know the promises of God. They know the biblical truths that they're supposed to know. But they're lost when it comes to the second part. They're really struggling to know what to do with that truth. I mean, practically. How to live it out, how to flesh it out on a daily basis. They really just seem to be struggling with that part. There's a lot of reasons for that. You can probably think of some right now yourself. Some people are just flat lazy. They're undisciplined. They don't want to work in any way. 
And so they're coasting through life, and the Christian life is just another way where they're just coasting. There's others who give into that spirit of rebellion that still exists in our flesh that says, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. So I'm going to do what I want to do, even though they profess to be children of God. There's other people who just misunderstand grace. They think, well, God redeemed us from the law. He, he rescued us from the law. So now he just kind of leaves it up to us to live however we want to. Any talk of rules or works or obligations, that's legalism, and we need to stay away from that. They misunderstand grace. There's others that I see who, are, who seem to be trying to live well, but where their priorities are coming from, I don't know. Because they don't seem to be consistent with what this book lays out. So we spent the last three weeks at Rosemont on this very subject, trying to, to figure out what God says the Christian life is supposed to look like. Not, not what we think, not what men say, but what God says. How he wants the Christian life to be lived. And again, since your pastors are really trying to promote unity between local congregations, I thought it might be good to share some of the same material with you because what, what do you think it would be like if here in Winston-Salem there were several hundred people out there trying their best to bring honor to our Lord and Savior by living the same way, His way? What would that look like? How much glory would He get through that? How much impact could you have on, on this world that was described to us just a little bit ago? Well, that's what we're after this morning, okay? So Romans takes on Paul's typical style. Paul's always theological, practical. And the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans are all about the theological. Here's who God is. Here's what God says about man. Here's what God has done for sinners through Jesus Christ. Here's the results of what God for, did for sinners through Jesus Christ. It's, it's the theology. It's that portion of what's on Paul's mind. First 11 chapters. Last five chapters are then the practical application of that theology. Last five chapters are Paul saying, okay, here's how to live in light of that truth. Here's what you're supposed to do with it. Chapter 12, verse 1, where we find ourselves, is kind of like the hinge between those two sections. It's the hinge that swings from the theological into the practical. So then, when you go from verse 1 down through verse 8, verse 9, and then even through the following verses, but especially these first eight verses that we're going to talk about this morning, it's, it's what I called over the last few weeks where we find just several foundations of the Christian life. And what I mean by that is that Paul gives us here just several simple, basic, unchanging, practical principles that I say must shape the life of every child of God. And I say it because that's what Paul said. And Paul said it because that's what God says. Just several basic foundations that must undergird every Christian life. Now, it took me three weeks to do all of that at Rosemont. So I don't have time to unpack all that for you here today. Mark's worried that I'm going to try it. I tend to be long-winded. That would take about a week. So we're not going to do that, okay? What we're going to try to do is just jump into the middle of this. And I want to just get you to try to focus in on only one of these foundations this morning. But before we do that, I want to try to point out to you just how important this is. So glance at verse 1 with me very quickly, and the very first statement that Paul makes in verse 1 says this, and I'm reading out of the New King James. 
I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Okay? Now jump down to verse 3 and let me show you another statement. Verse 3, Paul says, I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you. Now, now we're going to go back through these verses and, and get what's around those statements. But those statements remind me that here you have the Apostle Paul. This man was hand-chosen and sent by Jesus Christ to serve as one of his apostles, primarily to the Gentiles. And here's the Apostle Paul who was educated out in the desert by the Holy Spirit. And here's the Apostle Paul who at this moment is being carried along by the Holy Spirit to write the Word of God, to breathe out the breath of God. Literally, that's what he's doing here. And he is begging, he says, I beseech you, he is begging this church to do these things. And he is approaching them with the very same deep, kind desires for them that God has for them. The mercies of God. God wants certain things for his people. Paul wants those same things for these people. And he's treating them as his own spiritual family. He calls them brethren. These are just not some strangers. He's never been to Rome yet, so he doesn't know them personally. Yet still... He loves them as his own spiritual family. They are his brethren. And he's giving them not just some academic subjects, not just some helpful suggestions, not just some conclusions that he's picked up through the years from his experience. This teaching that he is going to give them, these commands are graces from God. They are gifts from God. These are favors from God to Paul, to them. To every one of them. And so when I consider all of that that you find in those two statements, it tells me that all of this is vitally important to Paul because it's vitally important to God. And even though here we are 2,000 years later in a far off land from this church at Rome, I would still say we would be both foolish and wrong to neglect this, to ignore it. To act like it's not relevant for us today because that was for the church at Rome. I think that would be a crazy and wrong position to take. So with all that kind of seriousness, hopefully, I want you to go back to verses 1 and 2 with me and, and, and listen as I read them. And I'm just going to give you some of the preliminaries before we get to the main point that I want to show you. Verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So you see where Paul's going with this? He's commanding the church to be constantly renewed or refreshed in our minds with the gospel. He wants them to be cross-centered by looking into this book, by looking at the truth, by looking at the gospel constantly and putting that in their minds. And he wants them to do that, to keep themselves from being conformed to this age. This period of time that is characterized by being atheistic and humanistic and self-centered and selfish, and, and we could go on and on and on, right? But he doesn't want them to be pushed into or molded into that outward shape that this world has right now. 
Won't we need that anymore? He, he, he wants them to avoid looking like the world and sounding like the world and handling relationships like the world and talking like the world. This is about an external appearance. And he says, you will avoid that if you are saturating your mind with the gospel. We do need that. Sorry, folks. Okay. I won't touch it anymore, I promise. So you saturate your mind with the gospel and then you are not conformed to this image of this world because as you look at the gospel, you see that those things that characterize the world today or this age today are the very things that put Christ on the cross. Those are the things for which he had to die. Those are the things for which we are guilty and he had to take our guilt and our penalty. So why would we want anything to do with that stuff, right? Gospel saturation, it it leads you to not be conformed to this world. And if we are constantly saturating our minds with the gospel, then we're going to be seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We're going to be seeing exactly what it is that makes him so beautiful. We're going to see his radiant beauty as we're looking at the gospel truths. We're going to be seeing his righteousness. We're going to be seeing his holiness. And as a result of that, we will want to be transformed into his image. Because that's the beautiful stuff. That's the good stuff. Not what characterizes this world, right? So gospel saturation will bring about those two results. Well, what is the image of Christ that we always talk about being conformed to? What is that image? Well, if you just think about it a little bit, you think about the Son of God, and He condescended and He took on flesh, and He lived as a man, completely human, flesh and blood, with a human body, just like ours. And He lived in that body, not to do His own will, but the will of Him who sent Him, His Father, the one He loved infinitely, right? That's what Christ did. And what was the will that the Father had for Christ in that body? Well, it was to be God's gift of grace to us. It was to be our substitute, right? We know that. He came to satisfy God's demand for righteousness and justice. He came to be obedient unto death on that cross. He came to redeem us and justify us freely and to reconcile us to himself. That's that's what Christ did in that body to satisfy the will of the Father. And when we get that, when we saturate our minds with the gospel and we start to understand, we start to appreciate what Christ did in that body and why he did it, when we get that, Paul says it's only reasonable, it's only logical that we'll do the same for him. Now, I don't mean that we'll die in his place. We can't do that. There's no need for that to be done. We couldn't anyway, right? That's not what I'm talking about. What I mean is, we will present our bodies to him as living sacrifices, just like he presented his to the Father for the same thing. These bodies are no longer ours. When we get the gospel, we will stand these bodies up before God and we will say, they're not ours, you purchased them, they're yours. What do you want to do with them? They're no longer ours. Take your hands off of them. They're they're not yours. This is not mine. It's only reasonable if Christ did what he did in his, then I should give this one to him. And the question should be, what does he want to be done with this body? Not, what do I want to do with it? And when we get there, folks, that's what real worship looks like. We talk a lot about the worship service on Sunday morning, and, and it's a joy to be here worshiping with you this morning. 
You talk to people about the worship service and they hone in even more on the music. When they think of, when they think of worship, they think only of music. And, and, and music is a great tool to worship God with. There's no doubt about that. But if the only worship you do is at 10.30 on Sunday morning with music, you're not really worshiping. Because real worship is something that's done constantly. It, it, it's done with your life. And Paul is trying to get these folks to realize, you know, this body, present that to him. This is your offering. This is your sacrifice of gratitude to God. Stand it up before him and say, it's yours. You use it for your purposes and your glory. You just tell me where to go from here. That's what worship really is, folks. So our question this morning is this. What is Christ's will for these bodies? How does he want us to live in them? Not how do I want to live. How does he want us to live in these bodies as a worship service to him? And that question then leads us to our subject in verses 3 through 8. And so I want you to look just at verse 3 with me. Paul says, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one, a measure of faith. We'll stop there and get to the other verses in just a little bit. So what is it that Paul's emphasizing here in verse 3 to these believers? He says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. And so what's he pushing for? He's pushing for humility, right? We know that word. We know that concept. Paul's pressing every one of these Christians at Rome for humility. But why? Why is that on his mind? Why is that important for the purposes that he's writing for here. Is it just because pride is sin? Is it because pride is one of those things that is an abomination before God, as as Solomon said in Proverbs? Is it one of those things that God hates? Is that why Paul is, is pushing them away from it here? Is it because pride lies? It, it rejects the truth and tries to make us something that we're not. Is that why Paul is opposed to it here? Is it because pride tries to replace God with ourselves? Because it does. Is that what's on Paul's mind right now? Is is that why he's pushing them away from it? I mean, all these things are true about pride, but I think Paul is worried about something else here. I think Paul knows what we know but don't want to admit. And that is that there's something in all of us that is always pushing us to try to find something in ourselves that's different and better than others. Even other believers. We have to admit it, don't we? It's it's like this craving. You know, I've got to point out a difference between me and so and so. I, you know, I would have done it better than that. I would have done it differently, which would have been better than that. Or I look better, or I, I didn't get in trouble like that person. I mean, any number of things is always coming to our minds, and this flesh is always wanting to take pride in ourselves, even at the expense of our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And Paul knows that that pride. That arrogance, that that self-exaltation is a killer to the Christian life that God wants us to live. And so Paul has an antidote for it. If you look back at the text again to verse 3, he says, think soberly. 
Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to, but instead, think soberly. And what he means by that is, you need, you need to think seriously about this. Don't, don't get careless with your thinking. Don't get sloppy with your thinking. Don't get flippant with your thinking. Don't be a fool when it comes to your thinking about yourself and about others. But think realistically about yourself. Think realistically about your brothers and sisters in Christ because his main concern is here within the church. So you need to think realistically. And Paul says, I'll give you reality, okay? Here's reality. God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. That's reality. That's how you need to think about yourself. Not more highly than you ought, but God has dealt to every child of God there at Rome or Cornerstone or at Rosemont. God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. In other words, there's no one of us who is better than another because every one of us has been given a gift. The same gift from God. And that's faith. So if you're one of those people who's tempted to view yourself as superior to someone else, don't. They've been given the same gift as you. Faith. Or if you're a person that maybe struggles with your self-esteem and you tend to view yourself as inferior to someone else in the body of Christ, don't. You've been given the same gift from God that they have. Faith. Now, you proud people in the room this morning are already ahead of me. And you've already looked at that phrase again, and you're thinking, yes, we've all been given faith. But Paul said we've been given a measure of faith, and guess what? I got more. Now, I don't, I don't know any of you, so I don't know who this is, but somebody's thinking that, right? A measure of faith. That's a portion, Right? And it's true, that's what this word can mean. It can talk about a size or an amount or a portion of something. And and it may be true that God does give different amounts of faith to different people. That, That very well may be true. To one, he gives an ounce of faith. To another, he gives a pound. To one, he gives a pint. To another, he gives a gallon of faith. And so that's why we talk about some people as being, oh, they're weak in the faith. Ever said that about someone? Or, that's a strong believer over there. It very well may have something to do with the amount of faith that God has granted to that particular person. But, even if that is true, we have to remember, you still had nothing to do with the measure that you were given. The measure of your faith and mine was just as much the sovereign gift of God as the faith itself. The amount of faith that each person receives was God's decision and God's action for God's reasons and God's purposes. So there's nothing that we can personally take credit for or pride in. The faith that each person has is equally valuable in each one of us and again, nothing that any one of us can take pride in. Now, having said that, I don't think Paul was using it that way anyway. Because this word for measure can have another meaning as well, and that is a measurement or or a standard of measurement. Okay? So, maybe just trying to keep believers humble, to, to, to try to help believers see themselves in reality, Paul might just be saying that God has given to every Christian a standard by which to measure ourselves. So it's like, 
He's given us each a set of scales to measure our spiritual weight. Or he's given us each a yardstick to measure our spiritual height. Or he's given us each a test to measure our spiritual IQ. And and guess what? By that standard, we all weigh the same thing spiritually. We're all the same height spiritually. We all have the same spiritual IQ by the standard of measurement that he's given us. And that measure of each one of us is the same. What is it? It's faith. Every one of us All of us are people of faith, as we say. Every one of us is a person with faith. A person defined by faith. That's who we are. That's the standard that measures us and measures us to the same place and the same point. Now here's the thing. What is faith? We talk about it all the time, don't we? We are glad we understand that we are saved by grace through faith alone, not by works, right? Have you ever sat down and pondered, well, really, in its essence, what is faith? What is it you will see if you have been born again? What is faith by nature? What does it do? How does it think? How does it feel? How is it reacting and acting? What is faith? Well, faith is the God-given ability to understand and believe that we are all described perfectly in Romans chapter 3. I want you to hold your place in Romans 12 and go back with me to chapter 3 for just a moment. Let's read some verses that I'm sure we are all familiar with. Romans chapter 3, and I want to take you down to verse 9. Now remember... This church at Rome was a conglomeration of really a couple kinds of people. Gentiles, you know, Rome, Italy, it's a Gentile area, but this church also seemed to have a bunch of Jews in it too. A lot of what Paul says in in the book of Romans, it's like you need to have a background in in the Old Testament scriptures, in the law, in in, in justification, in works, to, to understand what he was talking about. So Paul is dealing with a conglomeration of people who struggle to be humble toward each other for historical reasons, for cultural reasons. There, there was a lot going on here. And so in chapter 3, he's leveling the playing field. I mean, he's putting everyone where they belong, himself included. It's not a pretty picture, but, but, it, but it leaves everyone where we need to be before God. So Romans chapter 3, very quickly, I'm going to read verse 9 down through verse 19. If you've got this memorized, great. Just, just listen. Paul says, what then? Are we better than they? Are we Jews better than those Greeks? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, present tense, goes on doing good all the time. No, not, not even one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world 
may become guilty before God. What is faith? Faith is the God-given ability to understand and believe that this describes us left to ourselves. Naturally, as I came into the world, still a child of Adam, without God doing anything to change me, this is me. And that's a gift that must be given by God because we don't see ourselves that way naturally. We will not wear that label naturally. We want to we clean it up. We want to make it look prettier. We want to we have good face to put on before the public. We want to have a high esteem. And that does not leave you in that spot. But when God grants faith, our eyes are opened and we start to view ourselves this way. And when we view ourselves this way, we are left in complete abandonment of ourselves. That's what faith does. Faith runs from itself. Faith abandons every accomplishment I think I have, every, every work I've ever done, every ability I think I have, every bit of potential that I think is in me. Faith abandons all of that and is left in absolute desperate dependence on God for everything that I have and everything that I am and everything that I do. That's what faith is. It's a lot different than someone just walking down an aisle and us telling them, here, pray this prayer and you'll get into heaven. Now, this is a work of God, a supernatural work of God that completely changes our thinking about ourselves and about Him and about why we need Christ so desperately. That's what faith is. And Paul is telling these believers here at Rome that this is the gift that every one of you children of God has been given. Each one of you has been taken to this view of yourself and Christ. And you see what that does? It levels the playing field. It leaves us in a place where we can't have much pride in ourselves anymore. It leaves us in a place where there's humility in replacement of that pride that we used to carry so much. Because each one of us now realizes that we were in that same depraved condition. We needed the very same rescue by God. And each one of us was given that rescue in and through Jesus Christ. And it's only when we embrace that reality of ourselves that we are ready to live the Christian life in these bodies the way God wants us to. Until that point, it can't be done. Only in humility can we use these bodies like God wants us to live in them. Which is exactly then where Paul takes them. Go back to Romans chapter 12 with me. Exactly where he takes them in verses 4 through 6. 4 and 5 actually. Listen to these two verses when I read them. For as we have many members in one body... But all the members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So I'm sure you've been taught through this passage or 1 Corinthians chapter 12 before those passages on the spiritual gifts. But what you have here is Paul again pulling out one of his favorite pictures. And that is the body of Christ, the church. Or the church looking like or acting like the body of Christ. So I want you to think for a second about a human body. What, what do we know about the human body? Human body has a head or brain. That's what it's really talking about. And it has thousands of internal and external body parts. 
I mean, some of you may be doctors or nurses in here, and so I'm not going to try to give a, an anatomy lesson. I'd love to go back to school and take an anatomy and physiology class without the tests. I don't want to take the tests because I know what would happen. But I'd love to just sit in and look at the charts and the graphs and hear the explanations because the human body is brilliant, isn't it? it? It's such a complex but brilliantly designed machine. Absolutely fascinating. I mean, that's why Paul latched on to it so much. But, but, but you've, got a, you've got a head, you've got a brain, you've got thousands of internal and external parts. Every part has its own location. It has its own particular function. And all of those individual parts go together to make up the body. We know that all the parts are vitally connected to the head and they're vitally connected to one another through things like blood vessels and the blood and, and nerves and muscles and ligaments. We know the human body can't live apart from the head. Chop the head off, body dies. That's just blatantly obvious, isn't it? The body, all of the individual parts, are absolutely dependent on the head. But we also understand that no body part can live apart from the rest of the body. Not just the head, but apart from the rest of the body. Cut your hand off, put it to the side. Can the hand do anything anymore? No, it can't. It, it must be connected to the body. So let me give you an illustration. The, the human eye. Doctors are fascinated by the human eye and they say it's probably, possibly, the most magnificent body part because of what it does and how it does it. So you take the eye and as, a, as magnificent, as crucial as it is, that eye is useless apart from the skull, apart from the optic nerve, apart from blood vessels and, and blood, Apart from the eyelashes, it's, it's useless on its own. As, as beautiful as it is and brilliant as it is and crucial as it is, it can't function. It can't even survive without the other parts. And that's what the head does. That's what it's doing most of the time. The, the head uses the body parts to support and care for the body parts. So when you get something in your eye, the eye can't remove that object itself, can it? It can't. And so the head uses the tear ducts. And the head uses the other eye to look into the mirror to see what's in this eye. And the head uses the elbow and the arm and the hand and the finger and the skin on the fingertip. The, the head is sending messages and using all these other body parts to care for that one body part at that point in time. Okay? So this is going on at all times in your human body and in mine. The head has desires and the head has plans. It develops those plans. It sends out the commands to the parts. And, and those parts respond, each doing what it's designed to do in coordination with all the other parts for the care of the individual parts and to carry out the intention of the head as a whole. Human body. That's what happens. And Paul says the church is like that human body. It acts very similarly in some ways. We know Christ is the head, and the believers are the individual body parts which make up his body. Paul says here, we, we believers are members of one another. And what he means is we are all vitally connected to each other, not by tissue and ligaments. It's not a physical connection, but we are all connected by the presence of the Holy Spirit in each one of us and all of us. So, so we are members of one another, vitally connected. No individual believer can live apart from Christ. No congregation can live apart from Christ. 
The body of Christ, universal, cannot live apart from its head, Jesus Christ. And that's where this gift of faith comes in that Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 12. We just saw it a second ago. We are each and all, Romans chapter 3, apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, naturally left alone, we are all unrighteous, we are under sin, we are unprofitable, we are ignorant, and we are guilty. Apart from Christ. So we are absolutely and we are desperately depending on Christ, our head, and his work for us, his work in us, to make us righteous and to grow us and make us prosper spiritually, right? The question is, how does Christ, our head, do that? How does he care for us? Well, he has perfect desires because he is holy, holy, holy. He is divine. He has plans and he sends out commands to specific believers who respond to those commands doing his will and supporting the other believers. So you see what's going on? No believer can live apart from the rest of the body. Can't happen. All of us desperate, needy believers depend on Christ, our head, to meet our needs. That's what faith does. I'm trusting you to meet my needs. And Christ uses other desperate, needy believers to care for us when we need it and how we need it. But if you're like me, you stop and wonder, well, how can one desperate, needy believer care for another desperate, needy believer? doesn't look like we do each other any good because we're all in the same place. We're desperate and needy. So how does Christ pull this off? Well, that's what Paul describes in verses 6 through 8. So look at verse 6. Paul says, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now, don't worry, we're not going to get into a study of the spiritual gifts this morning. It's, it, it's not our goal this morning to figure out, okay, which ones are still in existence today and what are the subtle little differences between all of them. That's not our purpose this morning in our study. All I want us to see this morning is that practically we are each like a body part. We've each been given a gift of grace by God. And that grace is a functional gift. It's a favor from God that allows us to do something. Just like a body part, we are each designed, we are located, we are gifted, equipped, we are energized to do a particular work, to follow the commands of our head, Jesus Christ, and to serve and to care for the other body parts and the body as a whole in a particular way. So God is rescuing us from our spiritual misery and our condemnation by giving us faith to abandon ourselves and to trust in Christ for all of our needs, spiritual and physical, temporal and eternal. We're desperately needy. We're abandoning ourselves to to, to depend on Christ for everything that we need at all times. Christ then honors that faith by meeting our temporal needs through other believers whom he has gifted to serve our particular need with their particular gifting. 
So it works like this. You trust Christ to supply your needs every day. He does that through your brothers and sisters. He does that through their faithful, diligent use of their bodies to exercise their spiritual gifts that he has given them for your benefit. So someone will teach you things from Scripture you never knew before. Someone might exhort you when you get lazy or discouraged or distracted. Someone may show mercy to you when you are hurting, filled with sorrow and grief and and pain in some way. Someone may show mercy to you. Someone may give to you in a time of material need. Your house burns down. You have nothing. Someone in the body of Christ is gifted to give and they give liberally to you when you need it at that moment. Someone may help you to trust God when you're in the midst of a terrible trial and your faith is is weak at that moment. Someone may help you to trust God with their gift of faith. See how it works? And He will use you and your body and your gifts for them in the same ways. So I said all of that to say this, to, to really summarize this, the Christian life is meant to be lived in devotion to the body of Christ. The Christian life is meant to be lived dedicating the use of our gifts and our bodies to constantly serve the other believers and meet their needs. That's the Christian life that Christ wants us to live. Now, I real quickly want to show you a couple examples of this. So you can leave Romans 12 and flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. So, so what does this look like? Well, here at the end of Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, we, we may have never read this before. I mean, this is the part of letters that, ah, it's just Paul saying hello to a few people. It's no, it's no theology in here, so we don't bother much with the end of these letters, do we? We should. I mean, these, things are, these are rich with information. Pay attention to the end of the letters. At the end of this letter, he brings out one particular person in his household as an example of what we're talking about this morning. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 13, okay? Paul tells them, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. Now here it is. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Now what's Paul doing? Paul is remembering a, a certain man and his family who were some of the very first believers in this region. When Paul went and preached the gospel, they were some of the first to respond positively, some of the first to, to walk away from their idolatry and their pagan forms of worship and actually come and trust in Christ as their Savior, their Messiah. And Paul's not just remembering their belief and their faith, but what else is he remembering? He's remembering what came out of them after they first started believing. He said they were the first fruits. The first fruit was the, the part that came out of the field and was given to God, the first part of the harvest, and it was, it was just a symbol that the rest of the harvest is going to be just like it. It's, it's going to come out too. After this, it's all going to look the same. And he's saying Stephanus was the first fruits of the rest of the people who are now believing in Corinth. And, and what does he describe about Stephanus and his family? 
they did what? They devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Devoted themselves. They gave themselves entirely to this. This this was their occupation. Serving the needs of the saints. And Paul is saying, pay attention to that. Put your eyes on that. Follow that. Because that's what the Christian life is supposed to look like. And there's people that you know. You know them. You've met them. You watch them. Follow that. That's the Christian life. That's what Christ deserves from every child of God. Okay? Give you one more example. Flip to the right to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. So again, here's the Apostle Paul writing. This is something important to him because it was important to God. It was important for the church. So Paul here now is writing to Timothy, young Timothy, trying to lead the church at Ephesus, getting some flack because of his age. Paul's encouraging him. Paul's pushing him. Do it. Here's what you do, okay? 1 Timothy chapter 4, look at verse 13. Paul writes, Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine, or to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. What was he pushing Timothy to do? Exercise those gifts. Timothy, you've been given teaching gifts. Evangelism, teaching, pastoring maybe to some degree. Okay, so you need to devote yourself. You need to give yourself entirely to reading, studying, and then teaching, evangelizing. Don't, don't be messing with anything else. Don't get distracted by anything else. This is what Christ deserves from you. This is what you do with that body. You were given a gift. Be using it all the time. Devote your attention to that, Timothy. And so again, here, here's Paul writing to different believers in different places with different purposes in different letters. But in those different letters, it seems like this is always one of his purposes. To make sure every child of God understands this is the Christian life devotion to the body of Christ. Handing your body over to God for Him to tell you what to do with it. And what God wants you to do with it is use it to exercise those spiritual gifts to take care of the body of Christ. Now folks, let me, let me just warn you about something. And that is, there are no excuses for not doing this. None. There are no exceptions. There are no deferments. You know, as a pastor for 14 years now, I've heard a lot of excuses. A lot of them. Some people won't let it out their mouths, but, but they'll show it to you with their lives. You know, some people, oh, I'm just so busy at work right now. Or, have you seen how many kids I've got? Do you know how busy I am at home with all these kids? Or, I'm preparing for a future ministry. Going to Bible college, studying Four years from now, I'm going to be on a mission field. So Great, I'm glad. What's I got to do with now? I'm just too tired. Or I've got this physical ailment that, that keeps me from, from, from doing that kind of stuff. Just excuse after excuse after excuse. And I have no doubt if, if someone would have laid one of those excuses before Paul, you know what he would have said? No. No. It's no excuse. Look at the apostles. Look at those first believers. I mean, go back to Acts chapter 2 and and follow the lives of those first believers in Jesus Christ. And what do you see? 
You see people who served each other from the moment of their conversion and they did it through pain, they did it through weakness, they did it through persecution, they did it through poverty, they did it through homelessness, they did it without any excuse and they did it all the time. They did it when they were running from their homes. They were still trying their best to serve one another and they were were doing it without excuse and through all kinds of difficulty. Give you a better example. What about Christ? Christ is the reason we do everything, right? It's, it's the gospel. It's, it's the thought of the cross. And so here you have the Son of God who takes on flesh. He condescends and he takes on flesh and he lives 30 odd years on this earth. And what did he do constantly? He used that body in obedience to God to serve our deepest need. And he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And there's our motivation and our model. So there are no excuses. What does Christ deserve from us? What has he earned from us? And I'll wrap this up just by asking you some some practical questions to help you examine yourself and, and where you are in this Christian life right now. Beginning with the question, do you see that you have been given that measure of faith? Truthfully, honestly, can you see that, yes, I have been given that gift from God? Have you been humbled with the reality that Romans chapter 3 is a perfect description of who you were naturally? Have you been taken to that place where you abandon all hope in yourself, all hope in everything else, to depend completely on Christ and Christ alone? Have you received that gift of faith? Have you dedicated your body to Him totally as your sacrifice of thanks? It's not mine, it's yours. Here, I want to worship you, I want to bring a gift to you. What's the best gift I have? It's this body. So I stand it up before you, it's yours to use as you want. Have you come to that place? And folks, this is not something that we do every day. It's not something that we do all the time. The way Paul wrote it here, that's a one-time act. So I get the gospel. I finally understand and appreciate the gospel. And my reasonable, logical, rational response is, here, it's yours. You deserve everything from me. Here, it's yours. I do it one time, and every day I remind myself of what I did. Have you done it? Do you spend more time thinking about how you want to use your body or how God wants you to use that body for His purposes and Christ's body? Think about that. Last week, what did you do with that body to serve Christ's people? Last week, where was most of your attention fixed? Was it on, I'm going to use this body in some way to serve brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so. I'm going to use my body. I'm going to just give it entirely for their need at this moment in time. Or was most of your attention given to, where do I want to go tonight to make myself happy, make myself comfortable, make life easier, have fun for myself, Which is it? Which was it? Is the care of the body of Christ 
your devotion, to use Paul's word? Does it occupy your attention most of the time? Are you given to it entirely, to use Paul's words, to use the word of God? This is God's design for the Christian life. This is what transformation looks like. That word Paul used back in Romans 12, um, verses, verses 1 and 2. I did it again. I'll leave it alone this time. That was Paul's word, transformation. What's it look like, Paul? This is what it looks like. We get to the place where we're using our bodies as Christ used his. This is what real worship looks like. Sunday morning is great. Music is great. Not belittling them. But real worship is a life. It's a life saying, this is what you're worth from me. You are so heavy with glory and holiness and grace and mercy that this is what you deserve from me. You deserve everything I've got. And everything I've got is this body. Every piece and part of it and and the thing as a whole, you deserve it to be used for your desires, your purposes, your pleasure, and your glory. That's what worship really looks like. This is what brings him um, pleasure like a sweet-smelling aroma rising up before him. This is his design for the good of his people and for your joy. Let me quit with this. Every one of us shares something in common. We share a lot of things in common. But there's one thing every human being shares in common. We're on a mad search for joy. It's a fact. We look for it in different places. But we want to have happiness that lasts. doesn't fade away. It's not gone when things get tough. We're all on a mad search for joy. Well, guess what? Part of God's gift to us is the promise of joy. I have come that they might have life and that they might have it, what? More abundantly. More abundantly. That's that. Christ died for us to have abundant life. But where does it come from? It comes from living the Christian life His way. It only comes when we hand these bodies over Him and we say, hands off. I'm not touching it anymore. It's yours. You just tell me what to do with it. And as He starts to give those instructions here and we follow those instructions, suddenly, magically, we find the joy we were looking for everywhere else failing at over and over and over again. This Christian life lived this way is God's design for the good of His people and for your joy. Is Christ worth that from you? Let's pray.